Duke University Professor Emeritus Orrin H. Pilkey is one of the rare academics who engages in public advocacy about science-related issues. His collaborator, Mary Edna Fraser, is an artist who highlights environmental concerns in large silk batiks and oils. They are the co-authors of A Celebration of the World's Barrier Islands and Global Climate Change, A Primer. Their traveling exhibits are Expanding Oceans and Shifting East Coast Barrier Islands, Creatively Merge Science and Art. Mary Edna Fraser and Oren Pilkey, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having us. And so you've both devoted your lives to exploring the beauty and wonder of the natural world and advocating on its behalf. Just tell us a little bit about your journey and why you've decided to devote your vocation to it. Okay, well, when I first met Marianne, she was doing some beautiful painting. And I thought, you know, some of that could be focused or we could even just look at the painting available and look at it differently and point out some of the science and some of the environmental problems, especially with barrier islands. Why are we building all these houses right next to the beach, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's what we started to. And coming out in art, it's a whole new group of people who are looking at the problem that probably wouldn't be looking at the problem. For me, whenever I got the show at the Air and Space Museum, in 1994 and 95, uh, Aerial Inspirations. They have the largest audience in the world of any museum. And I wanted the art to be more than just something pretty. And so I asked them if we could go to Oren and put his science as text on the walls. And that began our journey together in 1993, when we were on a boat going to Cape Lookout National Seashore. And we realized we were equally passionate about barrier islands and decided to write a book. I do want to go into your book, The Global Climate Change uh, Primer and the Celebration of the World's Barrier Islands. Just tell me a little bit about your pilot, which you said. My brother is a pilot. My daddy was a pilot. My granddaddy was a pilot. And we have a 1946 vintage air coop airplane. And I've flown the entire East Coast and taken photographs from that little bitty tiny old plane. And what I saw was both breathtakingly beautiful and equally disturbing. Sometimes I could fly for eight hours and get no natural landscape below the wing. So I used the aerial photographs, maps, cartography. That's how I get my designs before Google Earth. And it must be so much different. You say we can now, there's Google Earth, but being in the plane, having that sense of being really linked to the landscape. It's, you said that you could fly for periods of time without seeing a natural landscape. I'm, how devastating and how heartbreaking is that? It's horrible because you get to areas where all you have is monstrous buildings that are on the sand casting shadows across the beach. And it's no longer a beach that is moving properly. 
And I think that Pilkey can address that, but the Barrier Islands seemed as different as snowflakes. And I wanted to know why some look like hot dogs and some look like drumsticks and what made them change over time. And all this that she's referring to is in the context of a rapidly rising sea level and increasing intensity of storms. And between the sea level rise and, and the storms and barrier islands, of course, are the barriers that prevent the, the mainland from getting some of the main waves. We are going to see vast changes in these islands. And we're going to see a lot of problems with people uh, living on the islands. I mean, like, how do you escape the island during a storm? when you have overwashed sand and, and water going over. So what she's doing, what we're doing, we hope is very important for the long range future. You've written about the effect of seawalls on beaches. What are some of the more compelling solutions? What are those that you feel are dangerous or untested? Well, the first thing you do, you've got an erosion problem and some buildings are threatened. So you build a seawall. And it took a while, and I guess we really learned from New Jersey that you build a seawall, yes, you might protect the houses for a while, but it destroys the beach. And that was a very important observation, and we got to do something, don't we? And of course, one of the things we argue is that that something might be moving buildings and might be, in some cases, getting off, off the island, moving to the mainland. And... I think this November 7th storm is, was a really big event in that a minor storm made the people on the island unable to escape, un, unable to move. Now, they didn't need to in this storm because it was a minor storm, but it, it showed us how very mobile and how very active these islands are. And we even know as Marietta knows that, we, that these islands migrate. As the sea level rises, the islands are migrating landward. They're capable of, of not being drowned by the sea level. Pretty, pretty interesting. They not move like, like the tanks. That's how they move, and they're supposed to be allowed to move. That's their nature, their innate nature. And when human beings don't allow the treads of the tank of sand to move, then we are clogging Mother Nature's uh, wishes, really. We think those islands, in some cases, started at the edge of the continental shelf 18,000 years ago when the, when the last glacier began to retreat. And, and they actually have migrated all the way across the continental shelf, or at least partway and maybe all the way. And, and now they're still, now they're ready to go again because the sea level is starting to rise again. And uh, we ain't letting them do that. Uh, that's our current attitude. But things are changing, but we're spending billions of dollars pumping sand, what we call nourishing beaches. In North and South Carolina, the, it usually costs more than a million dollars a mile and, and the average beach lifespan Artificial beach is about three years, something like that, three to four years. So um, we've got to stand back and look at this. And we hope we're 
adding a little step in that direction. And tell us a little bit about the inspiration and uh, you know organizational principle of your book. It's quite unique in the, in the way that it's designed and the way it puts across these um, facts. Yeah, we want to look at all the barrier islands in the world. I think I can't remember the exact numbers, two thousand something barrier islands all over the world. The United States has many more barrier islands than anybody else. We have 450, starting from the south shore of Long Island all the way to the Mexican border. So that's one reason why there's more science on the barrier islands from the U.S. than anywhere else. The next one would be maybe Russia, Siberia, and Mexico, and Australia. We began to see that every island is different. Every island has a different amount of sand coming ashore, and every island has different waves. Like at Cape Hatteras, those are perhaps the highest waves on average on the east coast of the United States. But up in Myrtle Beach or someplace like that, the waves on average are much smaller. And then the waves come from different directions on these islands. And then the islands have different grain sizes. I mean, you, 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 many, many parameters are different. And that's what made it really fascinating from a science standpoint, trying to figure out um, why these islands are different. Another thing is different tides and uh, different tide amplitudes. Some have high tides, some have low tides. And that makes a difference. So, and what happened in the November 7th storm that I mentioned on the Outer Banks they had what we call a king tide. It's the highest tide. There's three or four, sometimes four or five king tides every year, whether a foot or two above any other tide of, of the year. And that coincided with a windstorm coming ashore and the high tides. And that's why they had waves washing over the island. Each island is different. The island, and the islands in Australia are vastly different from the islands in, let's say, in, in Siberia. They all have so, so many different parameters. Your books, uh, Celebration of the World's Bear Islands and Global Climate Change, or Primer, are both studying combinations of both art and science. Like you turn the page of the book and you see this gorgeous spread of color and ink, and it is a stunning experience. Could you speak more on the process of working on such books and how the two of you combined um, art and science into such a beautiful product? Oren and I argue a lot and he gives me scientific papers to read. I already had a bank of batiks that I had in my collection, but then he would tell me what he needs and he would give me the scientific papers. We'd sit and look and look and look until we could find something that could express what he wanted to be illustrated, but what I thought would be incredibly beautiful to the viewer. So one time we were looking at atolls and we'd found one finally, and then we found out we couldn't use that one, but we'd spent two days looking for an atoll. And so a lot of it is uh, looking at and at trying to figure out which perspective is the best, whether it's from a map 
or whether it's from a, uh, an aerial photograph and the boundaries, what Oren really wants to say in that picture. So for both of us, we had experienced hurricanes and they've been life altering. And a lot of people don't, don't realize how huge those storms are and now they're getting bigger. So to try to express the dynamics of a storm. You know, I, uh, before I met Marietta, I was a deep sea sedimentologist. I was studying abyssal plains at 10,000 to 15,000 meters depth. And Hurricane Camille came ashore in Mississippi and destroyed my parents' house in Waveland, Mississippi. And I was so impressed with what, just what she was talking about, the power of the sea and the fact that there was so, so much we didn't know, so very much we didn't know. And it, it was that, it was Hurricane Camille is what got me going to the coast. And then once I got to the coast, I met with this lady and we, I think, had a very good uh, partnership. And I'm not sure I've even told you this, Marietta, but I can, one time, I, um, a, a scientist who was a barrier island scientist commented on the book. He said, the book was very good, but why did you use art? And, mm -hmm. I, I, and I thought that this man is crazy. Um, I mean, it, it was so beautiful. And, but the world is full of different kinds of people. And he, he wanted technical diagrams and, uh, and, and a lot of, curves and, and so forth and but the general response in the scientific community has been extremely favorable very very favorable and uh, a couple of have said they thought maybe maybe they would try to find an artist <laughs> to work with <laughs> i think we have a, a unique relationship built out of respect and um, interest for instance, I, I didn't know, well, I didn't know diddly squat, really, like the Icelandic volcanic islands, they have black sand. And then the Nile Delta, which I learned was the breadbasket of the world is one of the most threatened areas for water on our planet. And so I wanted it to look like a flower. So sometimes I will get an idea like for the North Carolina coast looks like a storm passing over a woman's breast because it looks like that from a, a cartographic point of view. And it's very pretty, but it's also tantalizing at the same time. The mouths of the Mekong Delta looks like a, uh, a skeleton. And that was because of all the places that are still alive with bombs that people are stepping on in that area. So it, many times it would be what you read and study that would uh, push the art in another direction. Yeah, and each of those differences, all of those differences are because of natural processes that I mentioned earlier, the amount of sand, the size of the waves and so forth and so on. And in, in Iceland, the um, those are, those are perhaps the only island, big chain of islands that are actually moving seaward at the moment because they're getting so much 
so much uh, volcanic uh, sand that is being produced by the volcanoes, which are inside of the shoreline. And it's just pushing, it's just pushing the island out. Of course, sea level will sooner or later take care of that, and it'll start pushing, pushing back. But I mean, it's, each of those islands has different characters. In Egypt, the sediment that used to go down to the Nile Delta was stopped by the Aswan Dam. It's all piled up behind the dam, and now, now the Nile Delta is not getting any sand, not not much sand, because of that dam. And there's a lot of evidence of of the role of humans now in, in controlling what the islands are doing. But they still remain very, very dynamic features in the Earth's surface. <clears throat> Both of you, what you shared is a beautiful way of expressing it. And definitely when you, whether you see it from an aerial view, but an aerial view is really helpful to put it in perspective because you do see that the islands have a character and whether, as you said, it's like a woman's breast or, you know, there's often a silhouette or a, a gesture, a skeleton. And, and I think that that's so well expressed through your art. You know, we have so much... Uh, brilliant cameras now and they can capture every pixel and um, not an offense to National Geographic but sometimes when I look at those photographs which are so real they end up feeling unreal because there's nothing left for the imagination or really the exchange the kind of relationship that one feels uh, Mary Annette your relationship to the land, you know, there's a feeling for it. And I think that that's what's essential when you come together in your beautiful collaboration, that you get this feeling of this earth is our home. These are islands that have characters. And, you know, if we care about our home, um, if we care about them like they were people, we would do more to, you know, preserve them and conserve what we have in this planet that we're damaging and and so I'm um, you know I love these kind of artistic and scientific collaborations because it's it's hard to believe there's some, still some people denying climate change and they had all the evidence so it's not even evidence you have to get them emotionally right right when we did the global climate change a primer book with Duke University Press only 30% of Americans believed climate change was real. I had no idea about climate change. This was before you, you heard so many terms that are used now constantly. And he, he didn't simplify the science, but he did tell us succinctly what to expect in the future if we do not change our path on the planet. I, I think, and I'm very excited about this, I think due to many people, including me and you, everybody believes in climate change now, but some don't realize how serious. Let me just real quickly tell you what's happened to British Columbia, Canada in the last year, the last two years. Uh, they had a heat dome. And it was covered most of British Columbia and part of Washington State. My daughter was underneath that heat dome, high pressure and, and very, very hot weather, very dry. And a number of people were injured or so to speak by uh, heat, by the heat wave. It lasted for six days and it's, it's, it's the hottest temperature they've ever, ever expressed there. 
in in also in in British Columbia, it's it, the highest temperature ever uh, registered in the country of Canada occurred at that time, on the city of town of Lighton. As it happened, the town of Lighton burned up because of forest fires that were going at the same time because of this. All this is within a year, and then comes now they're experiencing floods, big floods going on right now as we speak called an atmospheric river. So we have, in, in one place, we have all these records. I mean, if that isn't climate change, and I think that, and of course, we've just had the, the big meeting in, in, uh, in Scotland and of uh, world leaders and the UN has just put out a big report on climate change. I think the world recognizes it very much, but now the question is, are they willing to make the sacrifices that are required to respond to this? And it's, it's going to require a lot of sacrifice. <clears throat> well, better sooner than later, because we'll have no choice. I mean, it's, it's coming. That's right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. Yeah. Talk a little bit about some of the changes that you have witnessed. Mary Edna spoke about flying for periods of time and not being able to see a natural landscape. The positive and the, the disappointing changes that you've seen uh, throughout your career. For me right now, I live in a city that is a poster child of flooding. King tide flooding, heavy rainfall. And right now, I think... We're, I can't even give you dates or times, but Pilkey, do you know any of the stats about Charleston's floods and how often they are right now? I or don't know. It is, a, uh, it is the poster child of a city that's is probably doomed, at least the peninsula. You, you, don't, you don't want to say that out loud if you're from Charleston, but in my opinion, it's doomed just like Miami and New Orleans, um, if we look into the probable future, the probable flooding that's going to take New Orleans, the, the flooding from below as sea level rises is going to take Miami, and then the low peninsula, I think Charleston will become a walled city. I think they're looking at that now, but where the wall stops in the neck is where the poor people live. And what's going to happen there? The water's going to rush into the areas that aren't walled. So we have a lot of inequity in these walled cities that we'll see in the future. And the migration of the poor is going to be constant all over the world. We're going to have so much immigration. You know, they say in the south of the southern Africa, south of the Sahara, they're expecting within this century, 200 million uh, climate refugees, where are they going to go? Uh, who wants those refugees? And we have the same thing happening in Central America. Where are they going to go? And it's all over the world we're seeing, because of climate change, we're seeing these vast changes uh, affecting all aspects of our society. It's very worrisome. And that's something that we have not been able to face politically. We need to do that, but I think things have to get a little worse before we'll really start coming up with what are we going to do with Miami? What are we going to do with Charles? Well, I'm the Pollyanna of this team. I am more hopeful because I believe that we can form 
new grids, new technology that will not be federally based, but will be locally based. And it will allow us to use wind and um, solar, but it will have to be state by state for people to make their own grids. And I think that that's a possibility. It's just that we're living in a dark period. It's like the dark ages of climate change. Maybe that's the way to put it. I do want to go back to that question about building walls. That's been a big thing in America. And and I interviewed Todd Miller, who wrote uh, Build Bridges, Not Walls. There's there's things that rise within the human character when you think about, I understand when you're building walls against, you know, being flooded. That's a, that's a different issue. But we, we haven't really addressed why some of the refugees are coming is to say there are a lot of climate refugees. They also can bring knowledge because a number of them would be farmers who can no longer sustain themselves because they were the first to be affected by climate change. So I feel like there there's ways that we can be learning and also accepting people into our countries as refugees, um, but also see them as a resource. I absolutely. And in fact, uh, we have to look at this even internally. We think that estimates of four to six million people from South Florida are going to come north in this century. And so you've got to bet there's a lot of talent among those. And, um, and where, who, what, and what city wants them? Philadelphia want them, uh, New York, and uh, this is the kind of thing. This is, we can do this. We can, we can figure that out. We can ask the government and others locally can say, okay, let's uh, let give us fifty thousand people, we'll, and we'll get this industry going here, and so forth and so on. I did go to a think tank in Atlanta, and they are already preparing for roads schools and housing for people to come to their city. And I think there are other cities in our country that are of like minds and hearts that see bringing people in as a resource. I wish more people did believe that. I agree. And in fact, we have to consider them as a resource and they will be a resource. Well, we're a country of immigrants, so uh, we're being very small-minded not to open our doors and hearts. But I'm just a creative artist type. Yeah, I I totally. (laughs) We can put them all on Barrier Island. My name is Panasara Jaitungit, and I'm the associate producer and student collaborator for this episode of the One Planet podcast. I first came across the work of Mary Edna Fraser and Orrin Pilkey in one of my environmental science classes where a celebration of the world's Barrier Islands was our main textbook. In terms of imagery, the book features both simple diagrams from our conceptual understanding of Barrier Islands and gorgeous spreads of Mary Edna Fraser's stunning batik art. A Celebration of the World's Barrier Islands has since become my favorite classroom required read. What artistic imagery can capture that sometimes hard science cannot is beauty and scale. Whites and blues cutting against each other to evoke the frigid cold of the Arctic. Gradients colorify the shifting environment as we move across space, much like how smaller scale ecosystems shift into others. The sense of size in a diagram is limited to a little scale bar in the corner, 
while art has shape, form, color, and more at its disposal. Pieces can bring to light feelings of serenity, or perhaps power, or even the urgency of encroaching seawaters. I have always felt a bit like a fake scientist because while I have studied geology and ecology as an environmental science major, my other major and my heart belongs in fiction, in writing. The art side of me feels less valued because if I'm going to do science, I might as well go all in, right? Instead of doing this academic split where I pursue two different disciplines. But I'm less interested in heading out into the field, collecting data, and living by the scientific method than I am learning about the science and writing about it in ways that are accessible and engaging for non-scientific audiences. I don't see how I can achieve that sort of writing without understanding the basic science. I don't have or aim to have the in-depth understanding of earth sciences that a professor does, but I want to fundamentally understand the concepts that encompass natural systems and how we impact it so I can connect with those systems and help others understand their role on this planet. Orrin Pilkey and Mary Edna Fraser's collaboration is especially inspiring to me. Their work is proof that adding art does not make science any less sciencey, but instead offers a different perspective in understanding the world. They remind me that art does not devalue the science, and what we often see as cold heart science is not unrelated to or deterred by art. Moving forward, I believe it is important to understand not only how we affect the natural world, but also how the natural world affects us, be it physically or emotionally. I would love to see more scientific communication efforts be punctuated by art that can more effectively speak to emotions that the natural world induces in us. And now, back to the interview. We've been talking a lot about climate change solutions, and we all know it's a huge global, large-scale issue. But speaking of globals and travels, Mary Edna Fraser, I think you also travel the world frequently. Um, you know, your website bio includes how you travel the world and teach and share the art of fatigue textiles. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to how your travels and your work, especially with women, somehow relate to this discussion of seeing people as resources and facilitating climate solutions. Well, let me say first that um, I've started making rugs in Nepal that are taking children out of servitude and giving their mothers a living wage. And there are lots of groups that are trying to do that right now all over the world. But as far as travel goes, I do love to travel. When I went to the Great Barrier Reef, I went diving and um, not with, I, I just snorkel, but I took 22 photographs and put them together to make the art. But I find that dyeing cloth has been very much a woman's job and women's work, although in Indonesia, the men are, are the leaders of that. But I find that women can do something meticulous and slow and find motor skilled and enjoy the slowness of that kind of work, the, the meditative qualities. And everywhere I go to teach, my classes are all women, 
no matter where, as a master dyer. My classes have all been women. I just realized that. And we, we have a lovely time together. I, I don't know if I answered your question at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me answer the, from a scientific standpoint that I, I find I've traveled all over the world looking at barrier islands. And I find every new country I go to, there's something startling in terms of barrier islands. It's something that blows away some of my uh, and other people's uh, assumptions about barrier islands. You see new things, and it's so exciting. And that, and that book that we, that we wrote put so much of that together. And, and if you can go through the whole book, it's pretty thick. You, I think you might see some of the feeling that I have, the excitement, of the difference between Iceland and the Outer Banks and, and the Outer Banks and uh, Singapore and so forth. It's very exciting. Travel is critical. We've met a lot of female scientists too, haven't we, Pilkey? Yeah. Very good scientists. Yeah, there was a time when I was very young that women weren't supposed to go into geology because they're delicate and, and we geologists, are, we go outdoors and rugged and all that stuff. And I remember as a graduate student, we went to a mine in Butte, Montana and a class, and our class was half women, which at that time was unusual in geology. And they wouldn't let the women in. We got to the gate and they told the women that they had to stay out, but we, the men could go on and look at the mine. And there was also a problem with women on oceanographic vessels. Hmm. That was before my time, but it, it, was, it just wasn't right. Well, thank goodness for women's lib. I mean, I'm happy that I'm a woman in my my time period, although at times I feel like we go backwards, but that means giddy up forward again. That's all I think. You should got to giddy up forward again. You, any glass ceiling is meant to be broken. It is so, intended in to be broken. In my lifetime, I've seen such huge differences in, in the, in the uh, acceptance of women. Um, they're almost as good as we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to kabong you on the head for that. <laughs> now we see a big, well, now we see a big movement. Um, there's women for climate, you know, mayors around the world. Some people argue that women could possibly be better advocates for the environment or maybe are natural coalition builders or natural collaborators. I feel that. I feel that we have our maternal instincts that mm -hmm. might be a little bit more grounded to the earth, um, but it has to be everyone. <laughs> it can't just yeah. be women. It can't just be men. Um, I, I women are different in a sense. Working together, we hit these things from two directions, but I think and I think it's the way it is now is the way it should be that you, okay, you want to do it. Let's see how good you are. And if you're not producing, then, you know, but that's not related to your sex. So, um, I think we've come a long way. We really have. I have a naturally competitive nature and goal oriented personality. And I encourage young women to find whatever it is they're passionate about and invest their entire soul in it and go for it. Whatever it is, 
because you'll be happy if you're passionate about your work. You'll struggle because all work is struggle at times. People who are passionate about their work are very lucky. Mm-hmm. I do. I'm passionate about mine. I think being passionate about it is, is a very fortunate thing. As a, a mother and a grandmother, I am very upset right now about misinformation in our schools being given on climate change through dark money. And it's happening not just in the elementary schools, but all the way through the college levels, because the money enables museums and environmental programs to flourish in uh, difficult times. But it is misinformation. And it's pretty startling that that is allowed to happen in our educational places. Yeah, but I, when we wrote the book on global climate change, um, some of the stuff then, I mean, it was really, it was even worse. We've it was even better. worse. It's gotten better. And when, when the, for example, global climate change, you know, when we did that book, all the oil companies, especially ExxonMobil, but others as well, were just adamant that they ain't got nothing to do with this problem. And, and we're not sure, you know, yeah, sure, we had some uh, rainfall over here, but we did back in 1962 or, you know, whatever. So, um, but I think, you know, we, it's a different level now and it's become more political now than and then a technical argument is kind of a political argument now. And we have the, the problem with the uh, pandemic that's creating all kinds of misinformation that is doing us damage. No question about that. But it's still gotten better, <laughs> I think. Uh, speaking of how things have changed and gotten better, you know, a lot of things are moving forward. Sometimes things take a step back, but eventually they end up moving forward and we all play roles no matter how large or how small. And could you speak a little to how you think your work has changed the scientific community, whether through its use of art or promoting understanding of climate change issues? I just wanted to know more about your own perspective on your own work and the legacy you will leave behind in this time of yeah, environmental I, crisis? Uh, I've been lucky. Things have, I, I, my, my thinking has, has moved along. I've had some missteps. I have learned, I, I, I believe in the scientific method and, and how scientists work. That is, we are critical. We're always critical. I, I think that's, for example, I think a science education is good for students because it makes them critical. You're asked, you're, you, you keep criticizing them, but it's not, it's not criticizing in a negative way, you're criticizing in, in a way of, um, let's move forward or, let's, or, or you're trying to get a better explanation. You wanna change it a little bit. I, I, I see more acceptance by the way of criticism now than there used to be. Uh, it used to be more personal. And uh, if you got severely criticized, it, that was an insult. But I think, I think scientists are taking this better. I think scientists in some ways are better now, and not necessarily in a technical sense, but in a personal way, in the way they accept or uh, criticism, in the way they give criticism 
That's that's improved. That's gotten better. I think the scientific community as a whole is better. The um, I just was reading an issue of Science Magazine, which is right here. Science Magazine. <laughs> and um, um, the old Science Magazine was terribly dull. And had, <laughs> it had nothing to do with, it had everything to do with your little teeny problem and nothing to do with with society and what and the impact on of this science on on society and there's all kinds of interesting articles in, in, in this and even in this particular issue that i've enjoyed and i wouldn't have seen that uh 20 30 years ago Thank well you. artists and and scientists really have a lot in common because we solve problems we're just a where all we do is just solve problems, question, do this, move that, change this, alter your perspective, uh, look at it upside down and backwards. And if I had not met you, Pilkey, I would have not become an environmental activist artist. And I, um, I make my work primarily local with the Charleston Waterkeeper, the South Carolina Coastal Conservation League, or the South Carolina Environmental Law Project, because I think if every individual could become more involved in their tiny little puddle of people, they could move more mountains as a group. There's a lot of power in working with your community. And my art totally changed because of you, Oren. These things I never would have thought about or known about. My mind um, definitely expanded with the horizons that you shot me into. Yeah. Well, at the same time, I uh, it's been a real discovery for, for me that the idea of working with an artist was why would I work with an artist? And other than that, I don't mind looking at art, but you know, then, but I've seen how the way you influence people and, and how your art, in spite of that one scientist who said you shouldn't have art in a scientist. <laughs> There's more than one. <laughs> Probably there is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's so true. I mean, you're a perfect partnering. You know, you complement each other. And I think it's it's important for us to know the hard facts because of course we need, you know, we need to be able to measure these things. We need stories, but we can't completely tell stories that have no relationship to reality. At mm -hmm. the same time, we need to know how we feel about those and to have an intimate connection and uh, to understand the, the beauty and the joy and the sadness of things that we're losing if we you know, don't pay attention. So I think it's just a, a, a beautiful pairing. And you continue this pairing with uh, some of your planned exhibitions, which we know have been temporarily postponed due to COVID and naturally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have also this traveling exhibition, Our Expanding Oceans, and, and also the, the shift in, in East Coast Barrier Islands. And that's something that we look forward to seeing where, wherever, uh, whatever part of the country you're in. Uh, tell us a little bit about those and, and, and what do you gain from that and the response from the, the public? 
Orin and I have had more than 100 exhibits together. And they've been mostly in university settings. And a lot of times we'll pull in the honors colleges. So we're taking the artist and the scientist and putting them in a room together. And we have the our expanding oceans show that was made by the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences rolled up here, ready to go, but COVID just kind of left it not traveling, but we want to have a show called Shifting East Coast Barrier Islands, which would combine our two books and bring the information that we're learning up to present day time. What we need is a, a, a museum of art and perhaps a partner in organization that would be interested. Yeah, they, you know, the science behind the art now is going to be even. In terms of coastal things, the, the latest UN report just was a bombshell. That's just, that's just a month ago or less than a month ago. And a, a bombshell about the future and a bombshell about the future of global climate change. And uh, they know they, these are the reports that they put out every, this is number six. And all the others have had a lot of probabilities and possibilities and maybe, but this one doesn't have, has very few of those. I mean, the evidence is so very, very strong. And this is what we could, this is what we need to bring to the forefront with our show, with our joint show. So. Yeah, the new work will be um, plein air paintings done on location on various islands on the East Coast. And I'll just go and paint and experience what's there. But Oren, before I go, will tell me what he would like for me to think about and portray. So my next trip is to Asaba Island in Georgia. And then I'm gonna to go to Wadey's, uh, the top of South Carolina. And then whatever island he tells me to in North Carolina, I'll just, he'll just give me assignments and then I'll go to work. Not that simple, but yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it is, you tell me what you need expressed and then we, we land on a site specific place for me to explore and share visually. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I hope we get to do it, Pilkey. Yeah. We still got a lot of juice in us, you know? <laughs> oh, you definitely do. You know, as you think about the future and education and, of course, the systemic changes that we need to take place and the importance of the art, what are some life lessons that were important for you both, teachers who helped you, and what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I would like young people to... Uh, in 1970-something, a Corps of Engineer colonel told me, I was pointing out to him that you shouldn't build a seawall. And he said, uh, what, what should we do? Sew up our hands and sleek away? And uh, I will always remember that. I would like people to be skeptical about engineering nature mm. and, and uh, who's going to win in the long run. We can't engineer it. We can't hold the shoreline still. I would, I would want to, to make that point. We can't hold the shoreline still. 
maybe for a little while, but if we build a seawall, the beach goes away. Yeah, and, uh, Mother Nature always wins. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would like I would like to have young people to be skeptical about the the success of engineering in fighting nature. Now that you know, of course, you can build a bridge over a stream and things like this. I mean, engineers do wonderful things. My father was a very was a famous civil engineer, but there there is a time and place where engineering doesn't doesn't belong, in my view. A lot of people disagree with that. I think and, that if I were to tell children what would be important, it would be to go outside and experience nature in its rawest forms, our national parks, our national seashores, and to reflect on the intricacies of the science that is in every single thing that you see whether it's the longitudinal slide of a long leaf pine or whether it's the beauty of all these praying mantises and how pretty they are or worms. Everything is interesting if you delve into it deeply enough and fascinating. As a child, my first drawings were of birds and I still love birds and looking at them and plants. And I think anytime we are closer to the earth, we can feel the struggles of other human beings as well. And my teachers were so important to me. When I was in the seventh grade, my teacher of history said, you can write about music, a scientific discovery, writing, or you can draw a map. I said, I'm gonna draw maps. I spent the whole year drawing maps. And she led me in that year to my entire future, mm -hmm. cartography. She gave me an opportunity to be an artist in a classroom. Well, it's true. Art is a, is a great teacher as well. We all have to, we all learn differently and I think that you pointed the way to it, teaching is also an art and it's seeing mm -hmm. what the student has in them, giving them that bit of encouragement to learn for themselves. Well, thank you, Mary Edna Fraser and Oren Pilkey for telling the story of global climate change and the world's barrier islands and helping us understand the beauty and wonder of the natural world and this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's an honor. It's a real honor. One Planet Podcast is produced by the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Panasara Jajongit with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate producer on this podcast is Panasara Jajongit. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.